Hello there, everyone. Welcome to the TSG Podcast. Just a huge disclaimer before we begin that all content produced on this channel is for education and entertainment purposes only. Enjoy the episode. Hey there, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Sean, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing I'm doing great, but Man, a lot of things are happening in the market this week. There's news in general. I mean, Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan, that that's big. Mm-hmm. That that is huge. I mean, we haven't had a US official, at least that high rank, visiting Taiwan in over, I think, 25 years. At least that's what it's saying in the news. Can you believe that? Uh no. I'm oh. surprised. Yeah. I mean, okay, so. What what the heck? Why 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 was this such a big deal? And why was this? You know, uh, why why is Nancy Pelosi doing such a thing? And what I've read, at least in the news itself, was that Nancy Pelosi wanted to do a tour de Asia or tour of Asia, right? Uh, mm-hmm. To meet with all the representatives of each of the Asian countries for s- some political reason but what i heard was that she visited taiwan talked to the president about things <laughs> as well as the chairman of uh, the taiwanese semiconductor manufacturing company and mm-hmm. so what are your thoughts on that um let's see various thoughts mm-hmm. i mean i guess um number one there was a big issue as far as um the united states having a cohesive um, policy and Mm -hmm. putting up a singular front. Uh, This, her trip was not something that the leadership wanted, both the Mm -hmm. uh, secretary of state, I think Anthony Blinken, is he secretary of state or secretary of defense? I can't remember, Mm -hmm. but uh, him and also president Biden asked her not to go, but she Mm -hmm. went anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's definitely some, fragmentation within Mm -hmm. the u.s as far as how to go about this which doesn't make us look good Mm um and you know with with people in congress and people in leadership i almost i always want to go back to money Mm -hmm. uh there's got to be some i mean i know that she has donors and supporters who Mm -hmm. uh would be more on the taiwanese side mm-hmm. uh more on the hawkish side and i think that's kind of i i think of that as being the central issue really in, in u.s politics is the money is the money Pretty well much if if you actually think think about this because i if i remember i read a, a reuters article on the one of the reasons nancy pelosi could be going to taiwan and they saw that just a couple of weeks prior to this whole event happening, her husband, I forgot his name, uh, sold his NVIDIA shares. And as you know, NVIDIA is a, you know, a graphics design, not graphics design, sorry, graphics chip design company. You know, they're known for their graphics cards, semiconductors designing and all of that. And majority of their chips are, I believe, made in tsmc and so if there was an event that could cause a negative relationship and affect the semiconductor stock 
they would take a huge loss on that. And so her husband, at least according to the Reuters, uh, sold, I think, I forgot how many shares, but sold a crap ton of shares. I mean, it's like their whole positioning in NVIDIA. And so I thought that was really interesting. Now, is there really a connection between the two? I don't know. Um, but it's just the events were v- like really lined up between the two. Uh, I think there's got to there, be. A connection. Th- yeah. And uh, this article says that uh, her husband sold $5 million worth mm-hmm. of shares at a loss of more than 300,000. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know, trying to reason through it and think what the connection could be. The CHIPS Act is uh, giving a lot of subsidies to NVIDIA's um, mm-hmm. competitors. So I think that right there is is the factor. Because NVIDIA is not going to be building mm-hmm. their own fabs. Or, I mean, not, not big mm-hmm. ones anyway. They're not on the list of people who are building large fabs in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But uh, Samsung and intel huge talks about it right uh, now yep yeah and tsmc and so basically the company's getting and and nvidia doesn't seem to be getting any money because they're just a chip designer Mm -hmm. so and so for for our newer viewers or for viewers who aren't really familiar with the semiconductor industry so what's happening i think within the past month is that there was a bill that's really being heavily pushed by the ceo of intel pat gelsinger where it's the CHIPS Act, where it will provide, I think, was it $54 billion in funding uh, for uh, funding of fabrication plants, which is the manufacturing company or manufacturing building plant factory uh, for semiconductors. And I believe right now our manufacturing for semiconductor chips, 80% of that is being manufactured in on the Asian continents, and only 20% of that is everywhere else, so Europe and United States included. So with the aid of passing this bill, Pat Gelsinger is hoping to even out that playing field where it's like a 50-50, like 50% on American and European soil and 50% on Asian soil. Uh, and I believe that's what it is, and I and I believe within this past week, it was passed by both the House of Representatives and Congress or the Senate, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I know it was passed by the, the Senate, Senate, right? Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. And I think it'll be easy to yeah. get through the House. And I'm not sure if it's being passed yet by the House. I need to follow up on that. But I think what was the, what was the last thing the president has to approve of it before it gets passed, right? So. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure uh, Biden will approve this because, you know, one, it's it's more money back into the United States. It's giving more jobs back into the U.S. And uh, it's going to ease up supply chain issues, at least for the advanced technologies that uh, we are currently having with. Uh, that's why a lot of the you know semiconductor companies are having a huge, not a huge crisis, but a huge downtrend. Uh, you know, from the year to date, it's like forty to fifty percent drop in in stock price. So, yeah, it, mm-hmm. it's crazy. And it did pass it did the pass house. the house. Okay, so that means we yeah. are one step away from passing the chips bill. And I know with Intel, we are actually uh, Intel is planning to build two fabrication plants: one on Ohio and one in New Mexico. I think. I think that was the last time I heard was Ohio and Mexico. So they're they're hoping to crank that up. But 
again, production won't be efficient until like maybe two, three, or even four years down the road. So we'll see what happens. I mean, it's, 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 it's tough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the whole issue with Nancy Pelosi, you know, coming into Taiwan uh, is the relationship with China itself. And there's just a lot of tensions there. And so, Sean, I know you're more of an expert on this and we've had many great discussions on it. But do you want to kind of refresh the viewers or or uh, explain what's going on with just Taiwan in general? Um, sure. So Taiwan um, was originally uh, back in the Chinese Civil War, which uh, there was a civil war between the communists and the Chinese nationalists uh, started before World War II. They put it on pause to fight the Japanese during World War II. Then afterwards, they went back to the civil war and the communists uh, won mainland China. And the nationalists fled to Taiwan and um, the communists uh, failed to invade Taiwan. And so Taiwan basically stayed as a, as the place where the previous Chinese government uh, continues to this day, and they still claim sovereignty over mainland China. Meanwhile, China, the Chinese Communist Party claims sovereignty over mainland China and Taiwan. Um, and essentially, there is sort of a stalemate mm-hmm. where uh, the United States wants to have Taiwan as its ally because the United States currently has the ability to com- do a complete naval blockade of China. Um, if China were to own Taiwan, then that wouldn't be the case anymore. And so it's uh, strategically critical, and it's critical because it has the uh, best semiconductor manufacturing plants in the world. And so it's uh, it's an issue that's in limbo, and the Chinese Communist Party is sort of pushing it and gesturing towards the possibility that they might try and take it within the next mm-hmm. few years. And that's, you know, for, for China to gather and to really capture um, those manufacturing plants, I mean, that's going to be big, uh, especially when majority mm-hmm. of all semiconductors are made in Asia right now. Uh, if China can grab that piece, I mean, it's essentially like a monopoly on on the world. I mean, it's it's we're all moving towards a more digitally focused age with AI development. AI, for them to run efficiently, does need a lot of uh, microchips, processors, semiconductors, what whatever, and it's going to have a huge heavy toll uh, on the demand on that. And so, if China is able to capture just all of that, at least sixty to seventy percent of of the production currently, uh, that's going to be big for China's economy. I mean, they they're able to just export constantly and charge it could be charged at a higher price if they control total uh, asian dominance on that so it's big it's really big and i'm not too sure if that's a good good idea uh on china's perspective i mean i'm always for you know you know a win-win situation for both sides 
Um, I think that's the best mm -hmm. way to have a global economy is if each side is benefiting. And because we're going towards more of a global co economy, uh, just having this tension is, is really uh, preventing us as a human species from moving forward. I mean, Elon Musk is always saying like, hey, you know, we got to work together to get to Mars and become an interplanetary uh, species kind of thing. And so, but having these side conflicts is really potentially holding us back. At least that's my opinion. But um, I remember reading, and I think this was a news article or something earlier this week uh, that says that even if China does manage to monopolize the manufacturing capabilities, the companies, majority of the advanced design is coming from U.S. companies like NVIDIA, AMD, mm -hmm. etc. And so if they want to pretty much design and, and and really be advanced as a society, they also have to develop their own uh, chip design companies and compete with the U.S. design because currently most of the designs are coming from the U.S. companies. So I don't know. What do you think? Is this like a win-lose situation or lose-lose situation if this event does occur? I mean, I, I can't really see this being very beneficial for either sides if if uh, china you know just totally uh, captures the manufacturing plants on taiwan and just have you know dominance in, in the exports of semiconductors um it would definitely be a lose lose the question is who would lose more and that would be the calculus if if china were to actually attack mm -hmm. taiwan I think the thought process would be that they would lose mm. less. Um, now that, that I don't think mm. that's true. I think the most likely scenario or certainly the most likely plan from China's mm -hmm. perspective is not to have a yep. war at all, that it benefits them to drum up the concerns about mm -hmm. a war, but it does not benefit them to actually have it. Um, so like, I remember I was watching a video about uh, the military strategies involved in, in attacking mm -hmm. Taiwan. So if, if they were to attack Taiwan, mm -hmm. um, they would have to land so many troops because there's so many people there and there's so much, mm -hmm. uh, they're so prepared for an mm -hmm. invasion. So when, when the largest amphibious assault in history was when the allies attacked uh, Europe, in world mm -hmm. war ii and uh we landed about we landed about one hundred and thirty thousand mm -hmm. troops on european shores within mm -hmm. a few days the chinese if to attack taiwan would have to land about three times as many troops wow they would have to land four hundred thousand wow. troops yeah and uh, they would all have to land it on one side of mm -hmm. Taiwan because the side of Taiwan that's facing away from China is all mm -hmm. mountains. So they have to attack the side that's mm -hmm. facing them. And there's not a lot of actually good beaches to mm -hmm. land on. So there's something like a dozen wow. spots where they. So this is, it, it's very, very tricky to accomplish this. And the Taiwanese have been prepared mm -hmm. for this. They have, some pretty advanced weaponry and they've been thinking about this for a long time well, and it's how many decades been there, has it been like seven eight decades <laughs> so yeah 
And if you think about all the things that the Chinese government has had to deal with over the last, you know, 50 yeah. or 80 years, for all the things that the Taiwanese have to mm-hmm. deal with, they have like one issue that they've been thinking wow. about the whole time. This issue. So there it would it would be extremely difficult for China to do this. Now, on the other hand, there is a political and psychological dimension where the Taiwanese understand that they are in limbo and they don't want Mm -hmm. war. So there could be some kind of situation where China could eventually get some kind of political control over Taiwan without, um, without any violence Mm. and, um, or they could get there. There's, um, there's levels of control, mm-hmm. right? You don't necessarily have to have a country be part of your sovereign territory. Like they've had, uh, China's had a history with Hong Kong and mm-hmm. Macau, which are were sort of strange, unusual situations, but essentially they were under Chinese control. Well, or they have become under Chinese control, but they actually have a certain level of sovereignty for the next 50 years until their sovereignty kind of mm-hmm. expires. So there's all, there's all kinds of possibilities that could happen and, and China's probably playing the long game. So they're probably trying to just increase their influence. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll throw in one more factor, which is if China did attack Taiwan in theory, they could destroy all their uh, fabrication plants yeah. and they could put all their engineers on a boat to America or on a plane mm-hmm. to America. And China would not get any semiconductors, mm. you know, uh, or Japan or wherever they want to go. Right. They could just, they could, uh, they could just burn it down and leave mm. it behind. And um, so, and, and if you're fighting a war on the mm. Island, you could destroy a lot of that stuff by accident mm. as well. So, um, so it's not a really good so, situation in general. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not a good situation. It does not seem like a good idea for China to actually yeah. attack Taiwan. If they were to do it, like I said, it would be the idea that they're going to lose mm-hmm. less than America loses. And they there's been a growing um, sort of communication and sort of coalition forming with Russia, India, mm-hmm. Iran, Brazil, mm-hmm. South Africa some of these other countries that are not quite in the top tier, but they're starting to form their own sort of economic mm. block with China or with the U S okay. uh, with China. So yeah, there's a thing called the mm. BRICS B R I C S, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South mm-hmm. Africa. And uh, I think Saudi Arabia, I saw a news article that Saudi Arabia is wanting to join mm. the BRICS. Um, so it's just various levels of teamwork. Now, all these countries are somewhat suspicious of each other as well, and they do have levels of independence. They're not going to, you know, relinquish any of their sovereignty, but they will possibly help each other out in terms of reducing the influence of Europe, the United mm. States. The main powers currently, right? The, yeah, the powers that they're, the, and the powers that are giving them mm-hmm. more problems. Now, if China, you know, is giving people problems like China has uh, been putting countries into debt and then causing problems like that. So whenever a superpower is causing problems for people, they look f- for an exit. And so 
China could put themselves into that situation as they spend more time as a more powerful country. But well, are they okay? So I, I want to play a little bit of a devil's advocate here. Okay, so are they really putting other countries in debt, or are they loaning? Initially, because the countries are looking for money. At least this is what I remember seeing uh, in one of the, I think it was the Economist that I remember reading, where China is actually lending uh, a lot of uh, funding for these emerging companies uh, in, in these countries because they want to keep growing, they want to build the infrastructure. So China's like, hey, you know what? I'm going to lend you income here. Go ahead, build it, and you pay me back in 20, 25 years. And it's it's supposedly a good deal at the time, but now that the funding is coming close to the end, or the contracts coming close to the end, China's like, hey, you know what? We want our money now, uh, and the countries can't pay it. So instead of paying them with money back, they're giving them equities in these companies or land uh, in these countries. So is it really? Uh, China forcing them to go in debt or they themselves put themselves in debt. That's what I'm trying to get at. Well, again, I know this is a complex situation, but this is like a small scenario kind of thing. So, yeah. And so part of it is I do often think about these issues in terms of us being in the middle of a propaganda mm -hmm. war where you, we can read articles about this, but we can't be sure mm -hmm. whether, how it's being yeah. skewed. Um, but having said that, the the lending playbook actually goes back further the the west the europeans and the americans have been doing this lending thing um and it was the idea is you make mm -hmm. a loan and maybe you know that they're not going to be able mm -hmm. to pay it back um or you you're not too concerned about that because there's something that you're mm -hmm. going to want and so you're maybe you know, either you get paid back or you don't, and you're happy either way. So when the country can't pay you back, um, you may, you know, trade for resources or something like that, or, or some, you know, uh, probably trade for, get some resources mm -hmm. out of it. Um, or you can, um, you know, America was wanting to spread a more capitalist approach and so when a country defaults on these loans, they could go in and say, we will let this go as long as you change your political system like X, mm -hmm. Y, and Z, right? You have to cut social programs uh, and be more capitalistic. Now, China is sort of, has borrowed this playbook, but it's, uh, they're obviously doing their own style mm -hmm. of it. And there's different ways they could do it. So when a country defaults to China, oftentimes they'll say, uh, that's okay, let us build this port and mm -hmm. we own it. And in some ways you could say, maybe that's a better deal than the previous American mm -hmm. version, right? And this could actually be a way, this is a strategy I was thinking about if I was in China's shoes. I don't know exactly if this is what's mm -hmm. going on. But what I would do is do the same playbook, but use it as a way to spread mm -hmm. goodwill where I could actually forgive the debts or what I take is something that's much more reasonable mm -hmm. and something that something that actually leaves the other country mm -hmm. happier. Um, and I think of this as being part of China's playbook because it goes all the way back to Mao. Mao had a theory called third worldism, mm -hmm. 
where basically because um, in Marxism you have you know the capitalist owners and then you have the lower class who are you know being controlled by mm -hmm. the capitalists and Mao said uh, the whole world kind of actually works this way you have the capitalist countries and then they're sort of extracting labor and wealth from the a large number of poor mm -hmm. countries and mouth you know thought we as the third world should sort of like team up to ultimately overthrow the capitalists in the way in that mm -hmm. marxist style so this would almost be uh kind of play into that playbook right where you if you go around giving the loans but then you don't you're not horribly punitive when they can't pay the mm -hmm. loans back um because third world countries people the people who run third world countries this whole issue is huge mm -hmm. to them they're it's always about loans they're struggling financially mm -hmm. they get these loans and they've been beaten down by the western loan system the world bank and the international monetary mm -hmm. fund so if china comes along gives them a better deal they're going to be pretty dang happy mm -hmm. about that and they're going to be on china's side so that could be part of what's going on it might it might be um and and just to uh uh i don't want to say refresh but just to give insight on why we started this podcast and why we call it this podcast the surrounding game podcast was because of these conversations that we had where you know it, it, it's a very complex issue just like with the game of go and for those of you uh who are familiar with the game uh, but for those who aren't familiar with the game, the game of Go is essentially a global perspective game. Uh, it's, it's very similar to the idea of chess, but you have to see things from different points of view, different perspective, different angle. And this is uh, an idea where there might be current events that are happening, just like with the whole Nancy Pelosi currently with the Taiwan, that is a local type of event. Uh, but how does that plug into a global perspective, which is what Sean just described as the third world uh, playbook uh, it could very well be part of that overall encompassing playbook and so um, this is just one of those cool different var variations that uh, uh, people are theorizing right now on why certain events are happening in the world today and so uh, Sean I, I don't know is there anything else I should add to that but this is one of the main reasons why we started this podcast was because you know as an investor and as a a, uh, a person who keeps up you know keeps it has interest in uh events that are currently happening this is this plays hand in hand together i feel yeah, yeah. i think so um you reminded me of a saying that um chess some people say chess is like a battle and go is like yeah, yeah. um go is is much bigger you can you're essentially there's similarities in that you're trying to predict uh the possibilities mm -hmm. right in your mind you have to create sort of a branching tree of possibilities in terms of what you could do and what your opponent mm -hmm. can do but the in go there's a very large board and things on one side of the board can impact things on the other mm -hmm. side of the board and you gotta watch yep. the whole thing and in Chinese politics, they say uh, they actually pride themselves on the fact that Americans and Westerners play chess and they're playing geopolitical mm -hmm. go. Um, and another, when I think of, you know, China and, and the geopolitics of playing go, I often think of the Belt and Road yes. Initiative, which 
uh, also plays into what we were talking about with building goodwill with countries that are not necessarily the top countries mm-hmm. in the world, but they have essentially built uh, a series of ports, airports, roads, and train tracks and uh, uh, internet connections spanning Asia, going into Africa and into Eastern mm-hmm. Europe. And the goal is to facilitate trade uh, to reduce their dependence on um, on maritime trade because you know because the West has them kind of surrounded and they have uh, there's a few choke points like the Strait of Malacca which is right next to uh, yep. Singapore if the U.S. blocked that off they would they would be cut off China would be cut off from a very very large portion of its uh, yep. imports. And so to reduce reliance on that, they've built all these different modes of transportation going into Russia, Pakistan, India, um, you know, all the way into Eastern Europe, like in Belarus or in uh, or Bulgaria, um, and even into sort of North Africa and, and the Middle East. And so that's just, and, and I, I think of that as, you know, when you're thinking go terms, they're, they're sketching out territory. Yeah. In Go, we have the term of a moyo, which is like you you build a very large sort of loose circle where you're starting to surround a gigantic area and the person, your opponent has to mm-hmm. get in there, do something about that. Because if they don't, you could end up with way too much territory. Mm-hmm. Or way too much influence yeah, that will manipulate yeah. the outcome that's globally happening. So, yep. And, and now, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but is the Belt and Road on the same ancient trade path that China used to use way back in the day? And they're trying to revitalize that original traveler's path when, you know, it was still an intercontinent trade rather than or in, not intercontinent, but within the continent, intracontinent trade. Um, I don't know if the so the the Belt and Road is like um, it's way okay. more than that. Um, it's definitely got more parts and branches and it includes uh, airports and seaports, okay. which weren't part of the original, but yeah, there's, there's definitely an inspiration taken from the original yes. Silk Road. And uh, when they talk about the Belt and Road, they, they often talk about mm. the Silk Road and I, there are probably parts of it that are exactly okay. the same. Cause like you have to go, if you want to go from Europe to you China, you have to take the Silk land, Road, right? You have to yeah, there's parts, there's there's probably flat parts where you could go okay. various ways, but there's also like the Himalayas. And there's probably a few good ways to get through that are way better than any other way, you know? So there's probably parts of the original Silk Road that are still heavily trafficked and still part of that whole mm. scheme. Maybe now they have train tracks or something, but probably some of the original mm. parts. Well, China's been really heavily in developing their railroad system, too. I mean, I, if I recall, there was a map mm. that I saw back in the early 80s where, you know, the only railroad was from like Beijing to another part of China. And now they have a huge infrastructure for railroad transportation resource, you know, exports, imports between each of the regions within China itself. And the Belt and Road, I think, is also going to build on top of that infrastructure where they're going to build railroad tracks out of China into the different various countries, or they've already done that. I don't know. Um, 
Mm-hmm. But it, it goes back to the to a book that I've read a while back, and you've read it too, called Guns, Germs, and Steel. Um, by I think it's Jared Diamond. I, I think that was the author. Yes. And in mm-hmm. in that, it's a fascinating book. If anyone has hasn't read that yet, I highly encourage it because it really explains why you know uh, countries are at conflict with each other, and one of the main majority uh issues always is resources and you know the reason why countries go to war with another country is for a gathering of resources land water etc and so there's always these main conflicts and with china uh if you just look at china's geography itself and how it's being encapsulated uh in in essence by you know geographical uh barriers or even by ports um, you know, it it, it kind of you kind of get to understand why China's doing what they're doing, uh, in terms of the Belt and Road and everything. They're trying to, you know, uh have a more flexibility in terms of their imports and exports. And so it it it, it, it again, it's like a whole global idea, global perspective of what's going on, and, and just trying to figure out where each of the puzzle pieces are are fitting, um, to say the least. And so, mm-hmm. and but one of the really uh, interesting things that I kind of discovered earlier this year, and this is just me from talking to to different business owners and everything, is that, um, and also reading it, is that a lot of Taiwan and China's relationship, at least in, in terms of the business front, they're very heavily interconnected. Uh, there's a lot of Taiwanese companies that have built up uh, shop inside the mainland China, as well as vice versa. A lot of the Chinese companies have built up shop inside of Taiwan, and so there there are actual like franchises between the two, and there's a good number of imports and export between the two countries, uh, in terms of a mutualistic business relationship. And I thought that was very interesting. Um, because when I found that out, I was like, wow! I thought they were always at conflict with each other, and that they wouldn't. Um, really ever do business but in terms of a global perspective it kind of makes sense because a lot of the you know resources are coming from the mainland china and a lot of the manufacturing production is coming from taiwan and so china's relationship with taiwan at least on a business front is like we'll provide you the raw goods you provide us with the finished products kind of thing so for this uh this um what do you call it event conflicts attention to happen it's actually doing a disservice to both of them um because taiwan i don't think have has a lot of natural resources on on the island itself at least at least that's mm-hmm. to my understanding yeah it's so it's um relatively small you know yeah. china's huge and then taiwan i don't know how big taiwan is i i bet it's about the size of Mm, I don't know, New Hampshire or <laughs> something, something like that. It's small. Um, it's yeah, it's 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 yeah. not huge. Um, and there's not a ton of animosity there. Um, they, it's it's kind of an unusual situation where they speak the same language. Uh, they don't have this extreme. You know, sometimes we think of other situations like uh, the conflict in Ireland and Northern Ireland mm-hmm. and England. You know, there was a ton of just anger and everyone wanted to shoot each other in mm-hmm. the streets or, you know, conflict in North and South Korea where they're standing on the other side of a line pointing mm-hmm. guns at each other. 
in Taiwan and China, it's not like mm. that. Um, and part of it, I think maybe part of it just comes from their overall pragmatism and the fact that uh, who the more one of them is just way, way, way more powerful and everyone knows it. And so how does this fare with investments then? Because we, we know there's a whole geopolitical tension right now. And with any investments, you always have to keep an eye out on what's happening globally. And this is one of the main reasons why uh, I think we love the game of Go and in you know our own investments is because they're, they're heavily globally interrelated, at least with the companies that we're investing in or with the cryptocurrencies and all that. So, Sean, how... How does this event, this whole geopolitical event, bode for Bitcoin in general? Like, is this a thing that you would be worried about? Or are you going to be like, hey, you know what? It's cryptocurrency. Everyone's in it. And this geopolitical might have an effect, but it's not going to be a big one. Um, that is an interesting question. I mean, I know that um, China banned Bitcoin mining within mm-hmm. their borders back in 2021 i think really it was um, that early or that recent yes i wow. think it was i think it was last summer oh wow so yeah i think i yes. thought they i thought they yeah. just banned bitcoin as an economic tool well so they've general. done uh it's been in the news okay. for years it would pop up that like china did some kind of quote-unquote ban of bitcoin Mm-hmm. But it was in 2021 when they said um, it is illegal to mine Bitcoin within China. And uh, they made it clear that they were very serious. And a lot of China's uh, Bitcoin miners shut down and sent their mining equipment to other countries. Wow. Um, now, it does seem to be the case that actually there is some mining going on in China. Mm. Um, it could be sort of government sanctioned mining on the down low or it could be illegal mining mm-hmm. um but there is uh, a ton of hydroelectric power in china mm-hmm. and that's really where a lot of miners uh bitcoin miners really want to get in on that because hydro hydroelectric power often means that there is extra energy mm-hmm. that is uh not going to be put to use mm-hmm. and so that is you can basically get it for free and mine bitcoin with it Mm-hmm. Um, now there's, there's different theories about what affects the Bitcoin price. Um, one possibility is one that, that is, seem to be growing in popularity is just that, um, as there's more liquidity, which basically means as there's more money available for investment, mm-hmm. that's when Bitcoin goes up. And when there's less liquidity, in the entire system, Bitcoin will go down. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that a recession um, would, would cause Bitcoin to go down generally. Mm. Um, I mean, so yeah, I was, I was, so I was thinking the possibility that, for example, China would go to war mm-hmm. in to get Taiwan, that may cause things well see i don't know which way that could go that could go either way actually as far as as far as the (laughs) amount of liquidity in the system it could cause uh tightening of money as Mm -hmm. money gets sort of pulled in especially you know it kind of depends on how the war goes but like Mm -hmm. 
in a World War II situation, things had to tighten up because more of the economy had to be geared toward production for the war. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, modern wars are generally not so total. Mm-hmm. And usually, uh, oftentimes, like the stock market will go up if there's mm-hmm. war in modern times. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It could, it's, it's unpredictable exactly how that would affect Bitcoin. And it's really interesting because they do say that the modern war is not a war of soldiers. It's actually a war of, you know, technology, you know, uh, yeah. infrastructure, a war of currency. Even I believe uh, it was a James Rickman or James Rickman wrote a book, uh, Currency Wars, uh, way back when. I think this was back in 2009, 2012, where he did say that or that there's going to be a currency war or the death of money and we're all going to go more of a credit route, digital route. And so the, the, a lot of this does unfold, which is, which is amazing. And uh, for anyone who's ever listened to, to uh, I think his name is James Rickman or Jim's Rickman. Um, he, he's very dry and it's very analytical and, I, and I, it's hard for me to understand him, but that's as much as I was able to get out of him. So mm-hmm. <laughs> But now that, it's it's interesting, yeah, yeah. That does remind me of uh, some theories I've heard from a guy named Tom Luongo. Mm. Um, now, I don't necessarily endorse this. This is uh, maybe leaning slightly in the direction of conspiracy theory. Okay, um, but I'm usually willing to entertain this kind of thought because, like, you know, you have to think about geopolitical possibilities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, going back to the game of go you got to try and think of a sort of tree of possibilities as far as what different players could do mm-hmm. and so um so th- this theory that i'm about to share is not something that i would say you can hang your hat on but it's an interesting thought mm-hmm. and the idea is that there is a sort of a currency war going on it's an economic war between um what you could call globalists and -hmm. people who want to like in the European union, for example, they are, they have, they regulate, they have a lot of detailed regulations for all the countries in Europe. And they believe that that is the right model. And that essentially the entire world should be teaming up and, uh, giving up small pieces of its sovereignty to a higher group who can then regulate everything and that would improve the world on the other side there are countries who want to be um nationalists who Mm -hmm. want to hold their own sovereignty all to themselves maybe even be authoritarian countries but they just they want that for themselves and so the conflict between russia and ukraine Mm -hmm. is certainly a part of that where it's kind of a conflict between russia and europe essentially where europe was slowly trying to absorb ukraine and russia lashed out and the the as a currency war this is impacted by money printing Mm -hmm. and um from the u.s perspective there's sort of almost both factions within the U S the U S being a democratic country and being kind of an open society, the, what you could call the globalist faction versus the nationalist faction is fighting it out within our own politics. Mm -hmm. And as far as banking and money is concerned, 
the idea is that the European Central Bank, they're doing heavy money printing. And what they want to do is uh, have a digital currency that is run by them mm-hmm. and goes for hopefully the whole world would be their goal, but essentially as many countries as possible mm-hmm. under the same digital currency that is essentially run by them. Now, a normal bank, a commercial bank, does not want that because they create money, they make loans, and it's kind of, it would destroy their own business model. Mm -hmm. And so that includes a lot of important American banks Mm -hmm. uh, and banks that own the Federal Reserve. So the idea is the Federal Reserve is tightening monetary policy right now Mm -hmm. against the European Central Bank, who's loosening monetary policy right now. And it is essentially a, a war of these two models and mm-hmm. of how the, what the future of money is going to be. Is it going to be tight money or is it going to be loose money? Is it going to be centrally controlled or is it going to be controlled by individual banks? Mm. Um, so that's kind of, a, it's an interesting theory. Um, it's kind of out there. Again, it's mm-hmm. not something I would hang my hat on, but it's an interesting, uh, it gives a different perspective. Well, I mean, it kind of co- coincides with the idea of the creation of different cryptocurrencies as well. And I know you kind of mm-hmm. tied it in, or at least that's that's the impression that I'm getting is that, you know, that's why Bitcoin was developed uh, back mm-hmm. in 2009, was to prevent all of these issues from really happening and, and just having a standard currency that isn't controlled by anybody. Right, it's controlled by the people in essence. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's an interesting thought. That really is. So that, that that's as much thought as I have processed with this <laughs> with this theory. It's it's a lot yeah, to it's... take in. I mean, there's so much information, and just being able to process the abundance of information and really come to a a refined conclusion. I think it takes more than two minutes for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the theory that was just introduced when i think when i put <laughs> when i was putting my little disclaimer on it yeah, i yeah. think what i would really say is it's not provable right uh, yeah we can't go out and say oh yes we this is true because you know it's just kind of like well it's an interesting idea it's mm-hmm. possible but mm-hmm. and it's not actionable either so it's yeah. kind of like well all right maybe you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you know, it, it it's just fascinating. Uh, just the different ideas that come out uh, when we're we're talking about investments or anything, and you know, and that's one of the big things. Not meaning to segue away from this topic, but um, it, it's really trying to understand the rules of the game, really, uh, just for any type of investment, any type of. Uh, issues that are happening that's like you, you got to understand the rules and majority of the time just taking a step back and looking at it from a global perspective why are countries being in conflict with each other one of the rule is they need to survive and the only way that they can survive globally is they need to provide something of value to the other sovereign countries or the other countries in general right mm-hmm. and so if you have a resource that is of value a raw good you can export that and that's going to give you Uh, an ability to survive in a global economy, right? That's economics 101 Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Now, what if a country doesn't have a naturally good resource, a raw good like oil, metal, uh, you know, uh, not heavy metals, what is it called? Uh, Rare metals, 
you know, um, alkali metals, whatever. Well, they got to find another way to provide a resource or a service. And so Taiwan, very limited amount of resources. They're not an agricultural country whatsoever because there's not enough land space for that. What do they have? They have their brain power. They have manufacturing. They can manufacture stuff. And I think that was the service they were providing on a global scale, right? Japan, mm -hmm. same thing. They, they don't really have a lot of agricultural land, but they do have services that they're able to provide, you know, a manufacturing capabilities, although now their manufacturing has kind of plateaued and uh, with the whole economics, we'll see if Japan ever recovers from their economic downturn in, in 1990s. But, you know, it, that is one of the rules that, you know, as an investor, you would have to understand or at least be aware of is like, you know, every geopolitical conflict always goes back to what is it that they can export slash import and can they survive with the current situation? If they can't, then they need to find another way, either opening up more trade routes, being the middleman, like a marketplace, being a middleman where people can gather and trade or, you know, opening up a more convenient way to export and import stuff where it's convenient for other countries to go through theirs etc and so um at least with investments that's how i like to see with a, a good chunk of it it's like okay well what are these supplies where are they getting their goods how are they using these goods are they using it effectively efficiently uh are the rules in place like tax rules are they benefiting you know manufacturing from building in that country or not and in the united states going back to the semiconductors currently right now it is not beneficial for a semiconductors company to manufacture within the united states because the tax rules are too heavily burdened it's, it's too high for them it, it, they don't have a good margin uh profit margin at least that's to my understanding and with this new chips act bill uh getting passed and with the support of the government in hopes to lower the, the taxes on manufacturing, it, we could see a change, right? And so that's going to bring back manufacturing back into the United States. And then we can become more of a manufacturing uh, producing country again, which would now we're able to export to the rest of the world as a global economy. And that's going to help us survive even longer, at least in terms of uh, uh a business, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, understand the rules. I, that was what I was trying to get at. So, and the relationship between the two, but it really does come down to a good, simple set of rules. Um, just like what Warren Buffett uh, says, you know, investing is a very simplistic idea. It's just having the temperament and the knowledge of understanding what's going on. I think that's the most difficult part. It sounds simple, but that's also difficult. So. And you were talking about having resources. I think that's mm -hmm. that's a critical uh, starting point. And I think with China, there are some important resources they have and some important resources they lack. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of the Belt and Road Initiative and the idea of trying to connect up with all these other countries mm -hmm. um, is so that they can uh, get the resources they need and get access to cheaper labor and continue rapid growth you know they have for example they import uh a very large portion of their uh oil and gas mm -hmm. and so that's definitely a critical thing for them and for now most of it i think 
like 80% of it comes through the Strait of Malacca. Mm -hmm. And so they're, you know, hoping to uh, build pipelines to Russia and get some oil and gas that way. It's a lot of things going on, a lot of moving pieces. And, you know, as, as a Go player, you, and you know this far too well, Sean, as a Go player, especially a, uh, a learning Go player, we tend to focus heavily on the events rather than the global perspective. And so I think that for a case such as this, I think it's a really good idea just to take a step back and see everything from a global. Yes, there's an event happening in Taiwan. Yes, there's an, the Belt and Road Initiative. Yes, there's a Malacca Strait, Malaccan Strait uh, situation. But we really just take a step back and, and try to look at it from the opponent's perspective. And I say that in, in relation to Go, you kind of have an understanding of why they're doing certain moves that they're doing. And the best way to defend against that is to not necessarily go in a, a direct conflict, but more of an indirect trade, so to speak. And that's that's the whole idea of Go is, is trading, right? And mm-hmm. if, I, if I can get a better deal than the opponent. Um, and, and I think that's that's one of the beautiful things about the game of Go is that it, it's not necessarily a war to to destroy the other opponent. It's more of the war to uh, get the better deals. Yeah. I know that I know that seems very very vague for for people who don't know what Go is, but it, it that's that's essentially the rule because in order to win in the game of Go, you got to get fifty one percent of the territory. So it's not the idea of capturing the king like it is in in um, uh, chess itself, but it's more so I I want this part of territory, and hopefully at the end of the overall conflict, I will gain fifty one percent of the the board, and if I can get that fifty one percent, I win the game, I win the war, so to speak. I think this is a great place to stop. What do you think? Uh, yeah. All right. So thank you everyone so much for uh, listening and watching to this point. If you have any uh, comments, please post them down below uh, in the show, not show notes, but in the, what is it? Comment box, I guess it's a comment box on Podbean and Apple and Spotify, but do, do reach out. And if you like these content, please don't forget to follow and subscribe. It will really help us out. And until next time, I'll, we'll see everyone in the next episode, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And don't trade a dollar for a penny. I, I'm still, it's so hard to do that outro. <laughs> Anyways, see you everyone. <laughs>